Now, our passage this morning, this parable of the wedding feast, consists of, it's the third parable that Jesus has given to religious leaders since he arrived at the temple earlier that morning. On his way in, he cursed the fig tree. He gave the lesson of the fig tree. He's given a parable earlier about uh, the two sons, the one who uh, said he wouldn't do what his father commanded him to do and then later did it, the other son who said he would do what his father uh, commanded him to do but later did not do it, and then, of course, the parable of the evil, of the wicked tenants. And now this one, now this parable, the parable of the wedding feast. And it is, this parable is the third parable in which Jesus pronounces a judgment a judgment against people. In the previous two parables, the judgments were directed against the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. But here, instead of limiting his judgment uh, simply only to those leaders, he expands it. Instead of simply uh, condemning, indicting the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, Jesus includes anyone who is a part of Israel but does not follow him in faith. Now, in last week's parable, Jesus compared the evil tenants to, uh, to uh, rather the religious leaders to evil tenants who beat his servants, who stoned his servants, who killed his servants when they came to gather the fruit that belonged to the master. In that parable before, the two sons, he compared the religious leaders to the son who said he would go out and do the work that his father commanded him, but later the son didn't. And through these parables, Jesus showed that the leadership in Israel was guilty of rebellion against God. They rebelled against God's command. They failed to be obedient to what God required of them. But we shouldn't make the mistake that it's as if everyone else uh, in Israel uh, were innocent, that only the leaders were guilty of disobedience, of rebellion. The parable this morning illustrates that the judgment Jesus threatens is not limited to the religious leaders. It's not limited to those only who are in charge. God will judge everyone who refuses to believe. He will judge everyone who refuses to repent. But He will also show mercy by inviting more people, more people who clearly don't deserve it, to the wedding feast. And so as we work our way through this passage, I'd ask you to consider this, that God calls everyone to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And many stubbornly refuse. But others believe and are welcomed to the feast. God calls everyone to repentance and faith in Jesus, but many stubbornly refuse. But others believe and are welcomed to the feast. We'll look at this passage in three sections, verses 1 to 7, rejection of the call. Verses 8 to 10, invitation to all. And then finally, verses 11 to 14, responsibility. Verses 1 to 7, rejection of the call. Verses 8 to 10, invitation to all. And then finally, verses 11 to 14, responsibility. So let's look at these first seven verses, rejection of the call. Picking right up where Jesus left off in chapter 1, he tells the chief priests and the Pharisees another parable. Now, there's a very similar parable in in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. But most commentators, most uh, scholars uh, agree that these are two separate parables. They have a similar theme. uh, They have similar characters. But Jesus told these two parables at different times and different places. And so we shouldn't try to fit them together, to cram them together, and to say that they're the same identical parable. Well, in our passage, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who was giving a wedding feast for his son. 
And in verse 3, we read that the king, he sent his servants, he sent them out to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this isn't a wedding feast put on uh, by just anyone, for anyone. It is a wedding feast put on by the king, for his son. It's set in a kingdom. Now, when the king sends out his servants, they are calling those who have already been invited. It was customary in ancient times to send out an initial invitation, uh, and that invitation would uh, be responded to. People would say, yes, I'm coming. And so these uh, servants who are being sent out in this parable are coming out for a second time. And they're coming out to those who have said, yes, I will come. This was the custom in that day. The second invitation or call uh, the servants were giving, it was a reminder. It was uh, telling these people who have said that they would come that the meal is ready. The time is now. Come and enjoy the fattened calf. And so the servants went out. But those who had said that they would attend, those who would already RSVP'd and said, yes, I'm coming, they stubbornly refused to come. Now, as you all know, if you've ever been a part of planning a wedding, uh, it's still common for a percentage of people who say that they're attending a function, a wedding or whatever it is, it's still very common for a percentage of those people to to end up, in turn, not not coming out for it. But imagine if 100% of the people who said that they were coming did not come. Imagine if 100% of the people who said they were coming changed their minds. It would be unheard of. But then on top of that, with this parable, we've, we've got to keep in mind that it's the king who is doing the inviting. It's the king who is inviting these people to his son's wedding banquet. To not, to not go to this banquet, especially when one has said that he would go, is the equivalent of treason. They are un, under compulsion to go, and yet they do not go. But how could every person who'd been invited refuse to go? Well, these first few verses in Jesus' parable show us how preposterous it is for these people to refuse the call of the king, especially after they had previously said they would come. Jesus is pointing out a situation that is ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. Why would these people not go? All of them who said they would. And they do it not once, but twice. Verse 4, it says that the king sent other servants. They went out and they gave details about what the king had prepared for the people. Fattened calves. They were ready. The tables were set. Now aside from the fact that this is the king's invitation, there's a certain obligation, a certain compulsion to go because the king is putting on the feast. The food that's been prepared should serve as an enticement for the people to come. But verses 5 and 6 show that their response is anything but grateful. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, just as in last week's parable, the servants in this parable represent the prophets whom God sent, whom he sent for centuries to call his people to repentance. No one in his right mind would think of treating a host this way, the host of a banquet, in this manner. How much less so... A king. But this, in essence, is the way that Israel has been treating God, their king, for centuries. This is the way that the the Israelites have been treating the prophets, the servants whom whom, whom God has sent for, for generations. 
And so the people here in this parable have greatly dishonored God. They've dishonored this king by their refusal to come. But the final straw is the murder of his servants. And so verse 7 says that the king was angry, angry, rightfully so. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. They burned it to the ground. Now this may seem like a disproportionate response. This may seem seem like a a major uh, leap in the continuum of violence. They do one thing and the king comes and burns down the entire city. But look at what they have done to the king. Look at what they've done to the king's servants. They've been disobedient by refusing to honor an obligation that they had made. They'd murdered these servants. They'd sent them away. And so we must understand that the the actions against the king in this parable are reflective of the actions of the people of Israel against God for generations. This is what they had been doing. And as in this parable, destruction will come upon Israel. Destruction had already come. Israel had been destroyed numerous times. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been carted out. And it will come again in A.D. 70. Jerusalem will be sacked. The temple will be destroyed. The Jewish people will be scattered across the face of the earth. And so the judgment that comes upon the people in the parable will be the judgment that comes upon everyone who refuses to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If you refuse to believe in the Messiah, this is the judgment that comes down upon your head. But God continues to show mercy. And so this parable is one of mercy as well as one of judgment. He continues to invite poor, hungry sinners to his banquet, as we're about to see in these next few verses. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. Invitation to all. The king has dealt with those who rebelled against him, who refused to come to the feast. But as we see in verse 8, the food is ready. There's no one to eat it. And so in verse 9, the king tells his servants, Go, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Anyone you can find, bring them in. Now, this is nothing less than what Jesus promised when he saw this amazing faith of the Roman centurion back in chapter 8, verses 10 to 12 of Matthew's gospel. You remember that when Jesus was going to heal this man, the centurion said, there's no reason for you to come. I too am a man under authority. And so Jesus said, remarking upon the centurion's faith, he said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the king is calling new people to take the places of those who have been uh, refusing to come. And in the parable, as well as in the passage just read from Matthew chapter 8, it is implied that Gentiles will be among those who are invited in. It's the implication there, more so even in chapter 8. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that it's only Gentiles who are invited in. That it's, uh, the Jews have been uh, completely disregarded. Neither can we make the mistake that God has made a separate plan for Jews and Gentiles. The plan is the same. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile must believe in Jesus as the Messiah. The plan is one and the same. 
The plan is the same as it has always been. It has always been faith in the Messiah. And here it is before us now. We see this uh, in the early church. The early church remained uh, predominantly Jewish for at least a few generations. And so this parable does not teach that all Jews will be excluded from the kingdom of God. Rather, all peoples, Jew and Gentile, who believe in Jesus Christ, will be welcomed into the kingdom. Well, what is commanded in verse 9? We have a commandment here to these servants. What is commanded is an indiscriminate call to everyone the servants came across. They're not to reject anyone. Everyone they see, they're to call in. And verse 10 takes it a little, a little further. It says, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they'd found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. They're calling everybody. They're not discriminating. Both bad and good are gathered in to this wedding feast. But we need to remember this as well. That these people came willingly. It was like offering free pizza to college kids. They're going to come. And the invitation given to these people is the free offer of the gospel. It is the general call. That's what theologians refer to it as. It is indiscriminate, as we learned when we considered the parable of the sower back in Matthew chapter 13. The church does not deliberately exclude or withhold the gospel from anyone. We've got an obligation to invite people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, both bad and good. In reality, it's all bad that we invite to faith and repentance. The church freely offers the gospel, and it is God who sorts it out. This is God's plan. And as Jesus said in Luke Chapter 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, not to any one group, not to a particular people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, to everyone. This is God's command. This is His plan. And so, the church gives the general call to faith and repentance. But this call can be rejected. It can be refused. And it can also be falsely responded to. Some who do respond to the general call of the gospel don't truly believe, and they won't truly believe. The church gives the general call, but the Holy Spirit gives the effectual call. And that's the the theologian's term for the call that is effective in bringing people to salvation. When the Holy Spirit calls you, you cannot resist. You cannot refuse the call of the Holy Spirit. He draws you to Him. And it's out of love that He draws you to Him. This call of the Holy Spirit, it cannot be rejected, but neither can it be falsely responded to. Those who are called by the Holy Spirit to salvation will be saved by God's free grace. Their minds, in the words of the Westminster Confession on effectual calling. Their minds will be enlightened to understand the things of God. Their hearts of stone will be taken away and they will be given hearts of flesh. Their wills will be renewed and they will desire to do that which is good. And most importantly, they will freely desire, freely desire to come to faith in Christ. In short, when the Holy Spirit works, when the Holy Spirit works on an individual, that individual is regenerated. He's born anew. By the working, the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And so God works. He uses the general call. 
He uses the general call uh, for people to come to Christ in faith and repentance. But it is the effectual call, the special call of the Spirit that truly draws sinners to Christ. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 11 to 14. Responsibility. Verse 10 gives us a picture of a, a banquet hall that is filled with people. It's packed with people, all who have been by, invited off of the streets by the servants of the king. And it is into this packed banquet hall that the king enters. And out of all of the scores of people there, his eyes come to rest on one man, a man who sticks out from the rest of the people there. Everyone else, it seems, has taken the time to honor the king by wearing their best clothing. But at least one man did not. Now, the hearers of this parable would have understand. They would have known the customs of that time, obviously. They would understand that the man came in his dirty work clothes. He didn't bother to change into clean white linens. The man stood out because everyone else had clean clothes on. And in verse 12, the king said, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He couldn't answer. There was no excuse Obviously, despite the late hour and the trouble the king had in finding guests, the other people still had time to go home and change their clothes before they came to the banquet. They simply did what was expected of them. They were obedient to the customs of the day. But this man did not bother. He did not do what was expected. He didn't give any evidence of having changed. He was disobedient. And the king's treatment of this man was harsh. Verse 13 says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's important to remember at this point that this is a parable. This didn't actually happen. The man's failure to change his clothes shows that he did not belong here. With true calling, with effectual calling, there will be change. There will be a transformation. There will be repentance unto life, as the confession calls it. With true repentance, there will be obedience to God's will. There will be a conformity to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. You will be shaped. You will be molded. You will be changed. And this is the outward evidence that a person has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. There will be a difference. And that difference is marked by obedience. It's the fruit of faith. Well, this man did not change. In a word, this man did not repent. And so he did not truly belong. This is the case as well in the church. The general call goes out for people to come and share in this feast of worship. And people come. You heard the call to worship first thing this morning. And we shouldn't expect that everyone who comes is a true believer. That everyone who shows up, who walks through the doors, truly believes in Jesus Christ. Both the scriptures and our experience counter that notion. But we take it in good faith that those who become a part of the church, and especially those who unite with us in membership, we take it in good faith that they truly believe in Jesus Christ and have repented of their sins. We continue to believe this about everyone in our church until they prove clearly otherwise. Our obedience to God is the evidence. It's the fruit of faith. And you're innocent until proven guilty, until you prove it yourself. But thankfully, 
Even though our obedience to God is imperfect. Even though our obedience is filled with disobedience. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. He forgives those who've been picked by His own hand. And He has picked. He has chosen. He's made choices about who will remain at His banquet. As verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. It is God's choice. It is not ours that it's ultimate here. God's choice is the ultimate factor in who will be saved. If God hadn't chosen to save some, none would be saved. No one would come to the Father if God did not draw them. We would never choose the Lord. It's not in our natures. We would be just like those who refused to come to the banquet in the first place. And so we see that God chose us and He brought us to faith by His Spirit. But there's a danger in reading verse 14 in a particular way, in a, in a very narrow way, a way that leads some to believe that there are very few true believers. It does say, after all, but few are chosen. And so sometimes we as Christians, we can begin to uh, 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 develop this sort of remnant theology, this idea that we are the few and the proud. We're the only true people, the only true believers out there. We're the one true church. And that's a danger. It's a danger to start thinking that we are the few true believers. Remember that out of a wedding hall filled with guests, the king finds only one there who does not belong. The church is large. True believers scatter the face of the earth. And if we start to exclude others who truly believe in Jesus Christ, we're in danger of breaking up that communion. Now, you have been invited to a banquet. You've been invited to a great feast. You've heard God's call. You've heard the call to worship Him this morning. This call uh, implies repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ because no one comes to the Father to worship Him him except through the Son. You've heard a more explicit call to repent and believe. Don't make the mistake of Israel, which was to assume that by virtue of being Jewish, they were automatically, they were automatically in without exception. They need to do nothing more than be born. Don't think that the simple act of being part of a church, even a church in the OPC, will serve to get you into the kingdom of God. As Paul said in Romans 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are in the church are truly a part of the church. That's why we make a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The church that we see versus the church that God sees. Being in a church, being a member of a church, does not guarantee your acceptance before God. Your membership in a church must truly reflect the disposition of your heart, of your soul. You can only be a true member of Christ's church if you truly believe in Him and repent of your sins. You can't point to the faith of your parents or your family. You can't point to all the good things that your church does in order to, uh, uh, to augment your standing before God. You must, as an individual, confess your faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, those who confess Him before men, He will confess before His Father. Each of you 
at an individual level, must truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save sinners. And without that, you have no hope. But with that, with that confession of your faith, with that repentance of your sins, you are in the church. You're a part of it. And your public joining of Christ's church, of one local body, is is an expression of that inner faith that you have. It's one of the fruits that you bear. It's a way in which you're obedient to the commands of the Lord. Well, you have been invited to the banquet. But it is true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that takes you to the feast, that enables you to feed in faith on Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that You have invited us here. We thank You, Lord, that You've laid a feast before us, that You've given us Your Word to feed our souls. We pray, dear Lord, we pray for the work of Your Spirit in each of our hearts. We ask, Lord, that He would enable us in faith to feed on Christ. Lord, we pray that You would guide each of us to faith and repentance in Christ. We pray for those who do not know you, for those who refuse to know you, for those who would rather starve than come to this banquet, that you, O Lord, would draw them to you. We pray as well for those who have known you for days or months or many, many years. We ask, Lord, that you would draw them again and again to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, our passage this morning, this parable of the wedding feast, consists of, it's the third parable that Jesus has given to religious leaders since he arrived at the temple earlier that morning. On his way in, he cursed the fig tree. He gave the lesson of the fig tree. He's given a parable earlier about uh, the two sons, the one who uh, said he wouldn't do what his father commanded him to do and then later did it. The other son who said he would do what his father uh, commanded him to do, but later did not do it. And then, of course, the parable of the evil, of the wicked tenants. And now this one. Now this parable. The parable of the wedding feast. And it is, this parable is the third parable in which Jesus pronounces a judgment. A judgment against people. In the previous two parables, the judgments were directed against the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. But here, instead of limiting his judgment uh, simply only to those leaders, he expands it. Instead of simply uh, condemning, indicting the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, Jesus includes anyone who is a part of Israel but does not follow him in faith. Now, in last week's parable, Jesus compared the evil tenants to, uh, to uh, rather the religious leaders to evil tenants who beat his servants, who stoned his servants, who killed his servants when they came to gather the fruit that belonged to the master. In that parable before, the two sons, he compared the religious leaders to the son who said he would go out and do the work that his father commanded him, but later the son didn't. And through these parables, Jesus showed that the leadership in Israel was guilty of rebellion against God. They rebelled against God's command. They failed to be obedient to what God required of them. But we shouldn't make the mistake that it's as if everyone else uh, in Israel uh, were innocent, that only the leaders were guilty of disobedience, of rebellion. 
The parable this morning illustrates that the judgment Jesus threatens is not limited to the religious leaders. It's not limited to those only who are in charge. God will judge everyone who refuses to believe. He will judge everyone who refuses to repent. But He will also show mercy by inviting more people, more people who clearly don't deserve it, to the wedding feast. And so as we work our way through this passage, I'd ask you to consider this, that God calls everyone to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And many stubbornly refuse. But others believe and are welcomed to the feast. God calls everyone to repentance and faith in Jesus, but many stubbornly refuse. But others believe and are welcomed to the feast. We'll look at this passage in three sections, verses 1 to 7, rejection of the call. Verses 8 to 10, invitation to all. And then finally, verses 11 to 14, responsibility. Verses 1 to 7, rejection of the call. Verses 8 to 10, invitation to all. And then finally, verses 11 to 14, responsibility. So let's look at these first seven verses, rejection of the call. Picking right up where Jesus left off in chapter 1, he tells the chief priests and the Pharisees another parable. Now, there's a very similar parable in in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. But most commentators, most scholars uh, agree that these are two separate parables. They have a similar theme. uh, They have similar characters. But Jesus told these two parables at different times and different places. And so we shouldn't try to fit them together, to cram them together, to say that they're the same identical parable. Well, in our passage, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who was giving a wedding feast for his son. And in verse 3, we read that the king, he sent his servants, he sent them out to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this isn't a wedding feast put on uh, by just anyone, for anyone. It is a wedding feast put on by the king, for his son. It's set in a kingdom. Now, when the king sends out his servants... They are calling those who have already been invited. It was customary in ancient times to send out an initial invitation, uh, and that invitation would uh, be responded to. People would say, yes, I'm coming. And so these uh, servants who are being sent out in this parable are coming out for a second time, and they're coming out to those who have said, yes, I will come. This was the custom in that day. The second invitation or call Uh, The servants were giving. It was a reminder. It was uh, telling these people who have said that they would come that the meal is ready. The time is now. Come and enjoy the fattened calf. And so the servants went out. But those who had said that they would attend, those who had already RSVP'd and said, yes, I'm coming, they stubbornly refused to come. Now, as you all know, if you've ever been a part of planning a wedding, uh, it's still common for a percentage of people who say that they are attending a function, a wedding or whatever it is, it's still very common for a percentage of those people to to end up, in turn, not not coming out for it. But imagine if 100% of the people who said that they were coming did not come. Imagine if 100% of the people who said they were coming changed their minds. It would be unheard of. But then on top of that, with this parable, we've, we've got to keep in mind that it's the king who is doing the inviting. It's the king who is inviting these people to his son's wedding banquet. To not not go to this banquet, especially when one has said that he would go, is the equivalent of treason. 
They are under compulsion to go, and yet they do not go. So how could every person who'd been invited refuse to go? Well, these first few verses in Jesus' parable show us how preposterous it is for these people to refuse the call of the king, especially after they had previously said they would come. Jesus is pointing out a situation that is ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. Why would these people not go? All of them who said they would. And they do it not once, but twice. Verse 4, it says that the king sent other servants. They went out and they gave details about what the king had prepared for the people. Fattened calves. They were ready. The tables were set. Now aside from the fact that this is the king's invitation, there's a certain obligation, a certain compulsion to go because the king is putting on the feast. The food that's been prepared should serve as an enticement for the people to come. But verses 5 and 6 show that their response is anything but grateful. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now just as in last week's parable, the servants in this parable represent the prophets whom God sent, whom he sent for centuries to call his people to repentance. No one in his right mind would think of treating a host this way, the host of a banquet, in this manner. How much less so a king? But this, in essence, is the way that Israel has been treating God, their king, for centuries. This is the way that the the Israelites have been treating the prophets, the servants whom whom, whom God has sent for, for generations. And so the people here in this parable have greatly dishonored God. They've dishonored this king by their refusal to come. But the final straw is the murder of his servants. And so verse 7 says that the king was angry, angry, rightfully so. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. They burned it to the ground. Now this may seem like a disproportionate response. This may seem seem like a a major uh, leap in the continuum of violence. They do one thing and the king comes and burns down the entire city. But look at what they have done to the king. Look at what they've done to the king's servants. They've been disobedient by refusing to honor an obligation that they had made. They'd murdered these servants. They'd sent them away. And so we must understand that the the actions against the king in this parable are reflective of the actions of the people of Israel against God for generations. This is what they had been doing. And as in this parable, destruction will come upon Israel. Destruction had already come. Israel had been destroyed numerous times. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been carted out. And it will come again in A.D. 70. Jerusalem will be sacked. The temple will be destroyed. The Jewish people will be scattered across the face of the earth. And so the judgment that comes upon the people in the parable will be the judgment that comes upon everyone who refuses to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If you refuse to believe in the Messiah, this is the judgment that comes down upon your head. But God continues to show mercy. And so this parable is one of mercy as well as one of judgment. He continues to invite poor, hungry sinners to his banquet. 
as we're about to see in these next few verses. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. Invitation to all. The king has dealt with those who rebelled against him, who refused to come to the feast. But as we see in verse 8, the food is ready. There's no one to eat it. And so in verse 9, the king tells his servants, Go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Anyone you can find, bring them in. Now this is nothing less than what Jesus promised when he saw this amazing faith of the Roman centurion back in chapter 8, verses 10 to 12 of Matthew's gospel. You remember that when Jesus was going to heal this man, the centurion said, there's no reason for you to come. I too am a man under authority. And so Jesus said, remarking upon the centurion's faith, he said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the king is calling new people to take the places of those who have been refusing to come. And in the parable, as well as in the passage just read from Matthew chapter 8, it is implied that Gentiles will be among those who are invited in. It's the implication there, more so even in chapter 8. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that it's only Gentiles who are invited in. That uh, the Jews have been uh, completely disregarded. Neither can we make the mistake that God has made a separate plan for Jews and Gentiles. The plan is the same. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile must believe in Jesus as the Messiah. The plan is one and the same. The plan is the same as it has always been. It has always been faith in the Messiah. And here it is before us now. We see this uh, in the early church. The early church remained uh, predominantly Jewish for at least a few generations. And so this parable does not teach that all Jews will be excluded from the kingdom of God. Rather, all peoples, Jew and Gentile, who believe in Jesus Christ, will be welcomed into the kingdom. Well, what is commanded in verse 9? We have a commandment here to these servants. What is commanded is an indiscriminate call to everyone the servants came across. They're not to reject anyone. Everyone they see, they're to call in. And verse 10 takes it a little little further. It says, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they'd found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. They're calling everybody. They're not discriminating. Both bad and good are gathered in to this wedding feast. But we need to remember this as well. These people came willingly. It was like offering free pizza to college kids. They're going to come. And the invitation given to these people is the free offer of the gospel. It is the general call. That's what theologians refer to it as. It is indiscriminate, as we learned when we considered the parable of the sower back in Matthew chapter 13. The church does not deliberately exclude or withhold the gospel from anyone. We've got an obligation to invite people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, both bad and good. In reality, it's all bad that we invite to faith and repentance. The church freely offers the gospel, and it is God who sorts it out. This is God's plan. And as Jesus said in Luke 
chapter 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, not to any one group, not to a particular people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, to everyone. This is God's command. This is His plan. And so, the church gives the general call to faith and repentance. But this call can be rejected. It can be refused. And it can also be falsely responded to. Some who do respond to the general call of the gospel don't truly believe, and they won't truly believe. The church gives the general call, but the Holy Spirit gives the effectual call. And that's the the theologian's term for the call that is effective in bringing people to salvation. When the Holy Spirit calls you, you cannot resist. You cannot refuse the call of the Holy Spirit. He draws you to Him. It's out of love that He draws you to Him. This call of the Holy Spirit, it cannot be rejected, but neither can it be falsely responded to. Those who are called by the Holy Spirit to salvation will be saved by God's free grace. Their minds, in the words of the Westminster Confession on effectual calling, their minds will be enlightened to understand the things of God. Their hearts of stone will be taken away and they will be given hearts of flesh. Their wills will be renewed and they will desire to do that which is good. And most importantly, they will freely desire, freely desire to come to faith in Christ. In short, when the Holy Spirit works, when the Holy Spirit works on an individual, that individual is regenerated. He's born anew by the working, the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And so God works. He uses the general call. He uses the general call uh, for people to come to Christ in faith and repentance. But it is the effectual call, the special call of the Spirit that truly draws sinners to Christ. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 11 to 14. Responsibility. Verse 10 gives us a picture of a a banquet hall that is filled with people. It's packed with people, all who have been invited off of the streets by the servants of the king. And it is into this packed banquet hall that the king enters. And out of all of the scores of people there, his eyes come to rest on one man, A man who sticks out from the rest of the people there. Everyone else, it seems, has taken the time to honor the king by wearing their best clothing. But at least one man did not. Now the hearers of this parable would have understand, they would have known the customs of that time, obviously. They would understand that the man came in his dirty work clothes. He didn't bother to change into clean white linens. The man stood out because everyone else had clean clothes on. And in verse 12, the king said, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He couldn't answer. There was no excuse. Obviously, despite the late hour and the trouble the king had in finding guests, the other people still had time to go home and change their clothes before they came to the banquet. They simply did what was expected of them. They were obedient to the customs of the day. But this man did not bother. He did not do what was expected. He didn't give any evidence of having changed. He was disobedient. And the king's treatment of this man was harsh. Verse 13 says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's important to remember at this point that this is a parable. This didn't actually happen. The man's failure to change his clothes shows that he did not belong here. With true calling, with effectual calling, there will be change. There will be a transformation. There will be repentance unto life, as the confession calls it. With true repentance, there will be obedience to God's will. There will be a conformity to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. You will be shaped. You will be molded. You will be changed. And this is the outward evidence that a person has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. There will be a difference. And that difference is marked by obedience. It's the fruit of faith. Well, this man did not change. In a word, this man did not repent. And so he did not truly belong. This is the case as well in the church. The general call goes out for people to come and share in this feast of worship. And people come. You heard the call to worship first thing this morning. And we shouldn't expect that everyone who comes is a true believer. That everyone who shows up, who walks through the doors, truly believes in Jesus Christ. Both the scriptures and our experience counter that notion. But we take it in good faith that those who become a part of the church, and especially those who unite with us in membership, we take it in good faith that they truly believe in Jesus Christ and have repented of their sins. We continue to believe this about everyone in our church until they prove clearly otherwise. Our obedience to God is the evidence. It's the fruit of faith. And you're innocent until proven guilty, until you prove it yourself. But thankfully, even though our obedience to God is imperfect, even though our obedience is filled with disobedience, God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. He forgives those who've been picked by his own hand. And he has picked. He has chosen. He's made choices about who will remain at his banquet. As verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. It is God's choice. It is not ours that it's ultimate here. God's choice is the ultimate factor in who will be saved. If God hadn't chosen to save some, none would be saved. No one would come to the Father. If God did not draw them, we would never choose the Lord. It's not in our natures. We would be just like those who refused to come to the banquet in the first place. And so we see that God chose us and he brought us to faith by his spirit. But there's a danger in reading verse 14 in a particular way, in a a very narrow way, a way that leads some to believe that there are very few true believers It does say, after all, but few are chosen. And so sometimes we as Christians, we can begin to uh, uh, develop this sort of remnant theology, this idea that we are the few and the proud. We're the only true people, the only true believers out there. We're the one true church. And that's a danger. It's a danger to start thinking that we are the few true believers. Remember that out of a wedding hall filled with guests, the king finds only one there who does not belong. The church is large. True believers scatter the face of the earth. 
And if we start to exclude others who truly believe in Jesus Christ, we're in danger of breaking up that communion. Now, you have been invited to a banquet. You've been invited to a great feast. You've heard God's call. You've heard the call to worship Him this morning. This call uh, implies repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ. Because no one comes to the Father to worship Him him, except through the Son. You've heard a more explicit call to repent and believe. Don't make the mistake of Israel, which was to assume that by virtue of being Jewish, they were automatically... They were automatically in without exception. They didn't do nothing more than be born. Don't think that the simple act of being part of a church, even a church in the OPC, will serve to get you into the kingdom of God. As Paul said in Romans 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are in the church are truly a part of the church. That's why we make a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The church that we see versus the church that God sees. Being in a church, being a member of a church, does not guarantee your acceptance before God. Your membership in a church must truly reflect the disposition of your heart, of your soul. You can only be a true member of Christ's church if you truly believe in Him and repent of your sins. You can't point to the faith of your parents or your family. You can't point to all the good things that your church does in order to, uh, uh, to augment your standing before God. You must, as an individual, confess your faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, those who confess Him before men, He will confess before His Father. Each of you. At an individual level, must truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save sinners. And without that, you have no hope. But with that, with that confession of your faith, with that repentance of your sins, you are in the church. You're a part of it. And your public joining of Christ's church, of one local body, is is an expression of that inner faith that you have. It's one of the fruits that you bear. It's a way in which you're obedient to the commands of the Lord. Well, you have been invited to the banquet. But it is true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that takes you to the feast, that enables you to feed in faith on Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that You have invited us here. We thank you, Lord, that you've laid a feast before us, that you've given us your word to feed our souls. We pray, dear Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit in each of our hearts. We ask, Lord, that he would enable us in faith to feed on Christ. Lord, we pray that you would guide each of us to faith and repentance in Christ. We pray for those who do not know you, for those who refuse to know you, for those who would rather starve than come to this banquet, that you, O Lord, would draw them to you. We pray as well for those who have known you for days or months or many, many years. We ask, Lord, that you would draw them again and again to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.